Welcome listeners to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a special treat because we have writer-author Sandra Rosterola with us. And Sid Blue is the one who told us about Sandra. So thank you to Sid. And Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Esther. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. With that, what we always start with is kind of the origin story of how did you get into writing? Why writing? Where did this all begin from? Wow. Writing has always been a passion for me. However, I'm a STEM girl. So in high school, I was the physics, chemistry, math girl. And I really actually kind of struggled with English. So like it actually was not one of my stronger subjects. However, whenever I wrote a creative writing story where they didn't really care too much about spelling or anything like that, I always got really good marks. The teachers just sort of brushed that aside because I was the STEM girl. So I really forgot about it for the longest. I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, and I moved to Los Angeles. And that's when I started to really think about it. And I took some classes at UCLA. And my teacher there, that was sort of my aha moment when he said, a lot of people that are good at math are also good writers because they really care about plot. Huh. I went, well, maybe I am allowed to do this. I started off just writing screenplays. They were the first things, placed in a few little competitions. But it was really writing a novel that I realised how much I loved writing. But I got into novel writing by pure accident. So what happened is my husband's a composer and he wanted to write a ballet. And I thought, well, I can help you with that because a ballet story is really short. It's like 8 to 15 pages. And so we came out with a very rough outline, like the five acts of a ballet. It's like one line, Cecilia in Plockton. You know, Cecilia goes on her journey. And I just started writing the story, just whatever came to my mind. I just went off on this adventure with this character, Cecilia. And I got about 90 pages in. Because every time I showed my husband, he just kept saying, yeah, that's great, keep writing, keep writing. <laughs> and then 90 pages in, he turned around and said that he's actually not going to do the ballet anymore because he's too busy. And I'm looking at this big chunk of work and I'm like, well, what do I do? And he's the one that said, turn it into a novel. And I went, what? Like, no, I've never written a novel before. I don't know anything about writing a novel. So I resisted actually for a couple of weeks. I was like, no, 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 no. But then I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And off I went, took those 90 pages, turned them into like 350 or something like that and became a novelist. That's kind of the short story of it or the long story. What does it mean? So I just decided I was going to write a ballet. How do you write a ballet when you're the writer and not the choreographer? All a ballet story is is just the story of what the ballet is. So you actually don't need to worry about choreography or anything like that. So when I met my husband, we sort of would have a bit of a clash in regards to when he produced my album for me. But I was more writing lyrics. And so he would say he'd read my lyrics and he would hear music to my words. But for me, in order to write more lyrics, I wanted him to write music. I actually <laughs> heard words in his music. So, so after funny. I was done with my lyrics we had a little bit of a block because he wanted me to keep writing lyrics I'm like no 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 I need some more music so I think for him he wanted the ballet story to help him write the music if that makes sense I guess ultimately because a ballet can go for about two hours that's why he kept saying yeah yeah, yeah, keep writing keep writing I think he wanted me to have like two hours worth of story for him to write to as opposed to just the basic outline that if you were to go to a ballet they're usually about five to ten pages so you can read and just know what the ballet is going to be about if that makes sense like it does but also what do you 
as the writer, you write, Cecilia goes to the market or whatever, and then does that become a three-minute dance? How does that translate? Yeah, well, we never got that far. The one thing, the way it starts is that the ballet is at five acts. So, yeah, we actually never got that far, and all we got were the titles of the acts. Like I said, very basic, Cecilia and Plockton. So I understood that he would probably want to write a lot of nice pastoral-type music, very scenic kind of things, because we're starting off with Innocence, this young forest girl. So we just started writing her story. Who is she? Why are her people there? in this forest. And then act two, usually in a ballet is when you introduce your antagonist. And so I just had this other little line where we introduced the senators of Vetus, who are our bad people. So I thought I had to go, okay, what's Vetus? What's this city? What happened to this city? And we turned it into a post-apocalyptic type world. I just needed that one little line and I just went, okay, and I just sat down and just came up with this world, this city, and who were these senators and what are they doing? How are they corrupting their people? How are they oppressing their people? So I don't know whether that's answering your question, but I guess all I needed was just one little nugget and I just started writing. But we never got that far for how Kurt was going to turn all that into music. That didn't happen. I don't think I ever knew that there was an actual writer with ballets that are not specifically the choreographers. Yes, the librettist is the writer, and that's pretty much all they do. They write the story. What? Yes. This is a very yes. big moment right now. A very big, big <laughs> learning moment. Wow. Okay, so coming from, well, so I guess you do the ballet and then you did the screenwriting after that, correct? No, I've already same been writing screenplays. Okay. But what ended up happening is, yes, I was 90 pages in. It was like I'd finished the story. You could call it a really solid treatment at that stage, like 90-page treatment. I actually turned that into a screenplay because I wanted to submit to a screenplay competition. And since I had a story, I'm like, well, let me do that. Right. But then I also turned those 90 pages into a novel. Wow. So for uh, my first novel, I do actually have the screenplay version of it as well. Oh, that's good. Well, so what's like a ballet is told in five acts and a screenplay is told in three acts. So how do those line up to each other? Actually, a screenplay can also be told in, or any story can be told in five acts as well. Right, so usually you just have, for a screenplay, it would be like, well, getting the middle and the end. The way it was, everything that goes wrong, basically, and then kind of all the resolution of it. It's kind of like a yeah. clump, like very vague things. So it yeah. seems like the ballet, it breaks it down a little bit more to add in the other two acts. One is just a whole act is introducing the antagonist. Apparently that is a very common thing that in ballets, act two is usually, and I can kind of picture it too, I haven't gone to a lot of ballets, you know, you start off in this very nice scenic kind of world and then you jump into this dark kind of, you know, you're introducing your antagonist. What made it interesting for me to telling the story is even though I wrote the first version of Cecilia based on that ballet story, the problem is Cecilia doesn't technically get to Vetus, like that aspect, until later on in the story. So I had a lot of rewrites where I had to change my plot because I ended up telling Cecilia through her point of view only. So with that limited point of view, I couldn't even really talk about Vetus until she got there. So right. it was a very strange process for me that I'd written it one way based on the ballet story, and then I had to change it and figure out the plot just being from Cecilia's point of view. And we're not saying this as a rule or anything like that, but it seems like the ballet doesn't have the specific point of view. You can't introduce no. necessarily another character then. Exactly, like that, right? exactly. A ballet technically could be more of an omniscient, yeah, exactly, point of view. Yes. I mean, there's so much other stuff, but this is very interesting. <laughs> and then what would be the fourth act that's officially in a ballet that you may or may not see in a screenplay? 
Again, I've never done a ballet story before, so I was learning from my husband, so we just sort of did the five acts. I even did a TikTok on this, and I just can't remember it off the top of my head because I'm so bad with these kind of things. <laughs> Pretty much the, the three act is broken into five acts. So basically, when you have act one and act two, for the five act structure, all you're doing is putting another point in between one and two. Forget what they call it. They, they call it something else in the same thing when you're coming into the third act. You're just having another beat there it is sort of the same thing but the only difference is like i said the ballet always in act two i guess that would be considered the inciting event or the break into act two like that moment in a normal story you're always introducing your antagonist at that point in time which i did don't get me wrong i did introduce it in regards to the fact that these dark riders ride into Cecilia's village and kill everyone. Well, yeah. The slight difference was in the ballet, we were actually introducing the people behind the Black Riders, which were the, the senators of Vetus, which I had to kind of change because Cecilia doesn't meet them until late in the three quarters through the story. She arrives at Vetus. So. And another thing you've got is that Cecilia became a trilogy. Yes. Oh my gosh, that was the other thing. Never planned it to be a trilogy, not at all. I did it as just a one book be read on its own but it was really more my fans and friends going well what's the rest of the story is there more and it took me a while I think I released book one in September 2017 and wrote book two and three at the same time like I plotted out book two and three so that there wouldn't be such a massive gap between the two of them and so book two and book three came out I think book two June last year and book three January this year so there's oh. only six months between the two. Ah, very good. Did you find yeah. that it was also a benefit to plot out book two and three at the same time? Because we could go back and forth between them. If you figured out, this would be really cool for book three, but wait a second, I have to set it up in book two. But you can't do that yeah, to book one anymore because it's out. Absolutely. Like, I really did like the idea that I plotted out book two and book three together because there absolutely were moments where, like, hmm, I, I think I need to tease this out because little things happen if you're a storyteller things crop up that you don't even know you're going to do and then you think well that's pretty cool I can tease that out a little bit in book two and yeah. build that storyline up a little bit more so yeah that, that was actually good to have right. definitely when people are asking about book two and you actually finally decided to sit down to write it how hard or easy what was it like to think about another great I need to think of a whole other book now or did you oh, kind of sort of know what it's going to be that was a challenge. The biggest challenge I had was at the end of book one, Cecilia and her main guy, Amalad, who Amalad starts off as an antagonist towards her. He's supposed to kill her. He's an assassin. But he goes from her captor to her guy to her lover. So it's a slight enemies to lovers story with those two. Well, the whole thing is, the comment is that he's aware that she's pregnant that she's going to have a baby. But that's as far as it sort of goes because it's all part of this prophecy. There's this, this entire prophecy and, and they kind of figure out that this entity, they couldn't figure out who this entity was that was going to be the great leader and they didn't know that it was going to be Cecilia or Amalad, but Amalad figures out, no, it's our child, our son is actually going to be this. And that's sort of where it ends. So I'm now going, oh, my gosh, I've got to write book two and book three. I can't have a heavily pregnant protagonist. <laughs> like, I, that was my struggle. I didn't know what to do with Cecilia and Amalad's baby. I didn't want the baby to die. I didn't want Alistair to die. So that was a real struggle to figure out what do I do with a baby so that I can have my protagonist go off and still do her journey but not have her baby with her. So that, that took me a while. But once I cracked that egg, 
I was like, oh, okay. But it was it was definitely challenging because the other thing I've got is this prophecy. I needed to extend the prophecy, if that makes sense. That was challenging as well, to be able to go, well, how do I extend the prophecy and figure out where it's all going? You gave everybody such a nice ending, and then all of a sudden it's not the ending anymore. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this the whole story is when they discover the prophecy, it's all, it's all laid out. This entire prophecy is laid out and it's written in a cave. And I'm like, if I've got the beginning, middle, and end of the prophecy, but I came up with a cheat to figure out that there was a chunk of the prophecy in the middle. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I was able to sort of spin how that worked, but that part was definitely challenging, very, very challenging. Yeah, because either you backed yourself into some sort of corner in the first book because it's Mm -hmm. out and you can't make any changes, or you just have to figure out what did I not specifically say in the first book because that's where my openings are. That's what I was able to do. I was like, oh, I can see a loophole. There's a bit of a loophole there. And it worked. Well, and then coming from screenwriting and then you're writing a full novel, what about that? Was that, oh my goodness, why are there so many words in this thing? Or All my yeah. screenwriter friends, I've got a group of friends. We all met together in this Australians in Film. There's a group over here called Australians in Film and they had a writer's room. There was a whole group of us that went to that. And so we still stay, we're still friends today. This was about seven years ago. They've all been on this journey with me but I'm sort of one of the only ones that broke away and has been writing novels they're still writing screenplays yeah, the rebel. And, yeah. and things and they just look at me and they're like how do you do it but I've got to be honest I don't think I'll ever write a screenplay again ever unless I'm converting one of my novels the part that I was terrified about novels is the part I actually love so I used to think how do you write a novel because at least in a screenplay you just say exterior house yeah leave it at that but you kind of got to describe a little bit more of the world to do some world building or you just go exterior forest. But when you write the book, you've got to give the sights, sounds, smells of the forest and your character's impressions of the forest and how that, you know, and that <coughs> freaked me out. But that's the part I actually love doing. It's definitely different, very, very different, but I just feel my stories are way detailed and more insightful and my characters are definitely far more well-rounded than my characters in my screenplays right so that was something for me also because I went also from screenplays to novels and it was where do you find all the words even now I don't necessarily overwrite I know a lot of people that's part of their struggle of when they're writing their drafts they write too many words I was like great now I gotta cut so much I don't usually have that issue it could just be me as a writer but or maybe because I came also from screenplays where I usually don't have enough work. Even now, I don't usually <laughs> have enough work. I'm sold on novel writing now, of course. It's just interesting. But after you wrote the first novel, what was your decision about getting it published? I, I tried to do the traditional route with it, but I sort of understood that it was going to be a tough sell because I had a lot of tropey things where the funny thing is readers like a lot of tropey things readers like the whole you know the chosen one the orphan that becomes the hero kind of thing the innocent girl that becomes the warrior at the end but a lot of publishers are like don't want to go near tropes don't want to do any of that sort of stuff and then the other thing is i realized that i didn't have a massive hook if that makes sense. I mean, the story pretty much is just set in a post-apocalyptic future, dystopian-type world, and basically this innocent girl living in the forest gets pulled into this battle between the goddess of light and her evil shadow, and she gets pulled on this journey where she ends up becoming the leader of the free world. But, I mean, sure, it sounds great and epic and cool, and readers love it, but publishers, it's just there wasn't, like, this clear what's different. I was fine. I was very realistic about it. I think if I was to go back to my original pitch letters and because that's a skill in and of itself, oh, yeah. the pitch and 
I'm like, yeah, maybe my query letters could have used some work kind of thing. I had a lot of friends that had self-published, which was great. So I had a lot of resources to be like, well, what did you do? What do you do? And it's just a learning process and you do it and you get your stuff out there. And I submitted book one to several competitions and I was really shocked at how well I did. I'd won like two different awards placed in about five. Nice. And it was quite shocking. And my husband loved it. And this was happening just up before the pandemic happened. So we got to go on about two or three little book awards and he loved it. He's like, any excuse to fly to a different part of America. And then the pandemic happened and there was one that we were supposed to go to up in Washington State, but it got pushed back, pushed back, pushed back because of the pandemic. And then it ended up just being a Zoom kind of video thing. Well, does he also sort of take credit though? Because if your book's winning awards, he's the one who told you to turn it into a novel. So. Oh, only jokingly he sort of does. He'll be like, so where's my credit? On yeah. this? But no, he loves it. So he also comes from the film world, which is again why I think he likes the idea of having the story written because again, he doesn't really just like to write music for the sake of it. He needs a film. He needs the visual medium to help guide what kind of score he's going to write. But no, he loved it. He's like, oh, it's just happy to just sit back and he loves being around authors he thinks authors are great people to be around well that works the competition and stuff that was after the book was published or as a manuscript you submitted it no no that was after the book was published oh okay because i was gonna say would that help you then in your querying to say hey i just want a bunch of rewards but yeah no it was after so you self-published it did you go to a company or did you use kdp or what did you no i did it myself i just had my own imprint called pinkest books and i just got some ISBNs from Balka. So I do both. I'm on Ingram Spark and I'm also on Inside. Well, I think it was still Create Space when I first did book one and then it changed over to Kindle Direct Publishing. I do both because definitely Ingram Spark is better to get the distribution in the other countries. Oh. So yeah, my friends in Australia that wanted to get a hold of it and then a few people my husband's European, he's from Switzerland. Oh. So, yeah, it was, I think, like, the royalties, definitely. The royalties are better that, that if I went through that as opposed <coughs> to however Kindle does it for the PODs, the print-on-demand books. Right. And so did you put together your own, you had to go and find your own editor, your own cover designer, you had to put together yeah, a team for Yeah, I found my entire team. I lucked out with my editor. I was at a party and I ran into a guy who's, also he's a film director, but we, we bonded on the fact that we'd both written our first novel. And he'd <laughs> written a novel too and he was raving about his editor. Look, he's, we, we talked about getting published and he goes, look, Sandra, because even me, he said his cousin's a literary agent. <laughs> couldn't get it published so he said that there was his cousin who referred this editor to him and I just reached out to her and look at the end of the day she did make me also realize that my debut novel she really helped All I can yeah. say is I don't know what she did but I would go through and I'd be like how did she change that sentence what did she just do to make this paragraph sound like it's really professionally written so the poor thing, I did think I did make her work. Even she was totally blown away by the time she came to edit book two and book three. The amount of work that she had to do was like minimal compared to book one. I've definitely come a long way with my writing, that's for sure. That's amazing. That also goes to show how important a good editor is. And people get afraid of editors. It's like, no, no, the best thing for you is to get a good editor. You've got to. You've got to spend the money, especially if you don't, you know, if you're not going to go through a 
a publisher that's yeah. going to do all that for you. You have to. And I'm so glad I did. I would have been mortified publishing my book without going through an editor. Even when I, I republished, because I, I changed the cover of Cecilia Book One had a different cover to my what my trilogy has, because okay. I just found it very difficult to do book two and book three based on the original cover design that we did. So even then I thought, well, this is my chance since I'm, I'm doing a second edition. Let me go back right. and just see, read book one again. Even though we kicked up a ton of them, I still had a lot of passive sentences. I was like, oh, that's a bit jarring. So I had the opportunity to at least fix things that I thought were an issue. So that was kind of fun. It's so crazy because you could put so much time into a book. Some people put, yeah, oh, it's a month, some people years, whatever it is. And you think like, this is it. And then as soon as you write the second book, you're like, wow, I love the first book, but why did I think that that was going to be like the climax? You know, why did I think that was going to be the best thing I ever did? Yeah. There's only up. It's crazy how that like, oh, why did I not realize that? Well, I think it, it comes back to the whole thing we don't know what we don't know, right? We write what we write. We're not deliberately writing a poorly worded book or, you know, that's not the intention, but we just write what we know. And it's not until it's pointed out to us that we go, oh, and so then, again, like anything, it becomes a skill and then you just don't realise how much your skill has improved when you come to book two and book three. I think that's why, because we didn't know. We didn't know who we didn't know about. Yeah. I mean, for me, passive sentences were such a struggle to get my head around. I tended just naturally to like writing in the passive way. I quite liked that whole passive way of writing something and it did my head in for the longest. Now very difficult for me to think of the sentence in the passive format. I go straight to the active way of structuring the sentence. That's why when I went back to book one, I'm reading these sentences. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it should be. You've got to be more active than that. It's worded incorrectly. Without specifying, I've seen, like, especially when you read enough, some authors, they've got these big debuts. The book is so great and so wonderful and they go on to other stuff. But you kind of see, I guess you could say like a solid sense of the writing style at that point. And it seems some books are going to be better than others. But as a general thing, their debut was so wonderful because you see there's something special about that author. And then the other books, it kind of still has it. And then sometimes there's this one author that her books were becoming really big. And I didn't realize that the book that I picked up was not her first book. It was a duology. I read both books. I, I thought they were great. And then I started to look for more books by this author. And I actually... Oh, I realized, oh, she has other books out there. I read one of her first books and I was like, this is not that good. It was such a good moment of, I just specified, not that it wasn't necessarily a good novel, but for her, I had already read the better version of her writing. So Wrong. the second version, I was like, I can't do that. But the first version, I was like, I could do that writing. It was such a good moment of take a deep breath. There's a lot of different writers out there and each has their own way. And that's, uh, that's how it goes. I, I kind of figured that that could have been the case for me because book two and book three were just very lean and just, I, even I could tell, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I went, it, it hit me like a, a brick when I read book one. I'm like, oh no, this stands out <laughs> too much. So let me just change it and fix it. So you did go and redo the whole of book one? No, I mean, basically I went through, my editor had picked up as many passive sentences as she could, but clearly I wrote nearly everything passively. <laughs> so there was still some. Okay. And then stupid stuff that I didn't pick up and, you know, little things like, you know, she sat down. You don't need to put the word down in there. Just right. she sat. Right. You know, little things like that. She looked with her eyes or something. Yeah. Stupid thing, but you know what yeah. I mean? Little, so it was little things like that, which I caught and I went, no, I'm just going to clean up these sort of repetitive 
annoyances, if that makes sense. I don't remember if it was a writer or an editor I saw was like, you don't have to say they nodded their head. Of course, they nodded implies that the head is being nodded. Right, yeah, what yeah. was being going to nod with? Yes, yes. Or I punched him with my hand. Like, yeah. <laughs> punch him with, you know. Right. Little, yes, exactly. Little things like that that I went, ah, which I wasn't doing in book two and book three because I understood that that wasn't what I'm supposed to do and it was very jarring for me when I read book one and caught those little things. My brother and his friends were like, when you have your book out, that's the way it has to be. You're not allowed to go back to it. The rule is what's published is published. And look at them like, I don't know how I feel about this rule. What if I want to change something? You also get to a point where you just have other stuff to work on. You were releasing a uh, redoing cover, so you're upgrading it anyways. But it's like, if I'm not going back to it, that's time I have to start allotting to go. F ah, I don't know if I want to go back to some of the first books. Oh, yeah, I would never have done it. I would have just said, fine. I mean, look, the, the first version was the version that won all the awards and everything. What do I care? But it, it really just was because I was doing book two and book three, and I really wanted book one to feel like it was part of the book two and book three. Right. In regards to the read. And why did you choose to write YA? Did it just seem like, well, of course it's going to be a YA? Uh, no, no. Again, that wasn't a conscious choice initially. I actually just wrote the story. And it really wasn't until I started to get into marketing and that whole aspect where it's like, oh, you have to make a decision. And I had actually set Cecilia to be older. I think I'd made her 20 and I pushed her back to 18 because that's kind of a cutoff for YA. Then I sort of realized that the fantasy fantasy, I just, I wasn't a George R. R. Martin. I could tell that my content, put it that way, my content was definitely YA friendly. Don't okay. go into massive sex scenes, don't go into, no, you know, not a lot of swear words or anything like that. So I just aged Cecilia down because everything else about my book was YA. So I just aged her down to 18 and went, yep, yeah, this is YA. And also a lot of people, you look at YA fantasy versus other fantasy, it's YA fantasy is just, I don't know what the right word for it, but it's not simpler in plot. It's simpler in the amount of characters that come in and the amount of places and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. That was sort of the other thing that I realized as well, that if I was doing YA, you don't want to jump into a lot of heads. That was the other thing I had to change. I started off with this omniscient kind of weird point of view. I didn't really know what I was doing. So okay. I pointed back to Cecilia's point of view. And I know that readers like that a lot that you're only in one point of view. For book two and book three, I had to make the decision that I needed to step out because there was just no way. The story just got so big. Cecilia goes on one journey. Amelard goes on another. Her brother goes on another. I did have to make the choice of having, I think I have about three to sometimes four points of view do a chapter you say Amelard you do his point of view Cecilia's point of view so I did do that for book two and book three to separate the point of views by chapters yes and I, I had to do that and it seems like it still works I had a tough time getting through a lot of Game of Thrones like I loved watching the series but I do worry about changing points of view because you're so heavily invested in a character and then their story kind of stops and you're in another character's point of view, you know? And I know that can be very tough, especially for younger readers. That's another thing in YA. You tend not to have too many point of view changes. I think like two is sort of supposed to be the max. Oh, yeah. I'm coming out with a trilogy that's got three points of view. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And in the YA genre, well, mine had book two and book three had three points of view. 
you can see if it worked also. So I think you could, to an extent, still judge your own work to say the flow is still there. And especially your editor will tell you the flow is still there yeah. and the story's going. It's not jarring. If not, they'll tell you it's too jarring. Move somebody around. Yeah. I know that in book three, it's even more comfortable because by the time Cecilia and Amalad actually come back together, which is in book three, we're not really changing points of view from a different storyline, if that makes sense. So yeah. they'll still be in the same plot. They're still all moving forward towards the same end goal. But we'll just see it from Amalite's point of view or Cecilia's point of view. Whereas we literally were on separate journeys in book two. So you sort of going back to this journey and this particular plot of that journey and this journey and that particular plot. still seemed to work, but it definitely was a struggle. The big compliment that I got from my editor was the good hooks at the end of the chapter. Yeah. You know, making sure you have a good hook and then a good way to come into the next chapter and making it very clear that you remember this point of view character, which was maybe two chapters ago, right, that you've got to remember what were they up to. So you've got to pull the reader back to orientate exactly the cliffhanger that you left two chapters ago. So that was not a challenge, but I was very aware that that was important and I did get good notes from my editor about that. That's great. Did you write it, the story, in the sequence of the way the story's told? Or did you write one character and then start inserting chapters for another character, splice and dice no, kind of thing? Yeah, it, yeah, no, I, I wrote it in sequence. I always have a map. Maps are so important to me. I can't really tell a story without a map. I had the map, and the map helped define at least the physical journey that everyone went on, right? Okay, this is the physical journey. Amalite's going to go up over there. Cecilia's going to go down over here. And then determining, okay, well, who are they going to meet along the way and everything like that. But definitely I just wrote the story, and I made sure I pretty much just rotated through my characters evenly. So Cecilia, Amalite, and whoever it was, Wyndham, I think. Cecilia, Amalite, Wyndham, Cecilia. It just kept cycling through. I didn't write all of Cecilia's story first. I left off and then I wrote Amalad's and then I just came back to where Cecilia was in her journey and wrote her chapter. Yeah. Now. Well, that's yeah. a good point about the map, which kind of preempts. Were you able to keep track mentally of all the different journeys and everything that's going on with each character? Or did you have to make notes for yourself to wait a second? What, what was this again? Oh, yeah, that's what it is. I think this must just be a skill I have because I do hear this with other writers and, and especially my screenplay writers when they talk about a novel. They're like, how do you keep it all? And I kind of just do. I don't really have to write. I just don't. I don't have to write a lot of things about my different characters. I can pretty much remember what they're up to and what they're doing. What usually helps, usually when I'm writing, I don't have chapter titles in my books. That I don't do. When I am writing, it, I'll, I'll write Cecilia and then I'll write a chapter title that is sort of very clear about what's happening in that chapter. And it's yeah. very easy. I just go can go look at that chapter and go, oh, that title. And I just remember what happened in that chapter. Ah, uh, very smart. Afterwards, you take it out so that way it's just... Yeah, then I take all those titles out. They're it... usually spoiler alert kind of titles. I always wanted to be that writer that could come up with a chapter title that was very vague but also made sense for the chapter, but I always would write these titles that were so specific <laughs> kind of spoiler, spoiler alert kind of right. chapter, but they helped me with the writing process, at least. That is a very good trick. Trick and tip. That's very smart. Thank you. Yeah. Usually I know story-wise where the characters are, but sometimes when I if I made up a name of a place or something like that, I'll just re-spell what I made up. I'm like, wait a second, how come it has an R here and it doesn't have an R here? Uh, yes, I do understand what you're talking about there. That's why having a map was yes. great, because I could at least hand, yes, I would handwrite on the map so that I knew what the name of that place was, because you make up those names as you go along, right? You carry right. to get somewhere, you're like, oh, that's an interesting spot to have a castle or something. Yes, that yeah. is problematic with some of those things. 
I wonder how much of this is your writer brain versus your math brain is contributing to this, the organization of all this. Exactly. Well, the other thing I do, which I just have to do, is I have a visual storyboard. While I kind of know my basic bits, like I've written it down, maybe I had about three to five pages for book two and book three of like what the basic plots were. I also had the visuals up so that if I said Cecilia goes into this ice cave or Amalad goes into this ice cave, I had pictures of what the ice cave looked like. And just having that visual storyboard helps. And there's many times I'd find myself just leaning back in my chair, looking up on my wall, and my map is always up on the wall. The map is always there. And just looking at these pictures to help me either describe what the scene looks like or to just be like, well, what else can happen? They're in that there. What else can happen that can be a problematic roadblock for them? Ah, very good. I'm like, I need a map. You don't have your characters go on a journey. You don't have a map? Well, my brain has a map. (laughs) I finally, for what my last series, my editor told me, you're trying to keep track of too many things. Put a map in here. Also put a map in here for your readers. But then I'm not very artistic. So I created like a very rough map in Publisher that looked like just a bunch of blocks with like little stars to mark things so it was very terrible and I got someone who's artistic I was like can you turn this into an actual map for me and they're just like we'll take care of it from here because whatever you just handed us right now is not legible oh yeah that's exactly what I did too I mean I just had this rough drawn hand kind of thing map and then I handed it off to this my map guy Matt and he turned it into a fantasy sort of proper looking map the problem was though when he would say so what's the scale and I'm like I have no idea (laughs) I really couldn't figure out the scale So with the next series I'm writing, which is this big magical kind of series, I actually found proper landforms, like I grabbed landforms from Europe. I took a page out of George R. Martin's book, his thing with uh, Westeros, and how Westeros is like island down on the bottom of England or something, and basically the wall is exactly where Hadrian's wall is. I'm like, man... I'm going to do that too. It's just stole some countries in Europe, sort of piece them together. But at least I now know that this thing here is is Iceland and I know the length of Iceland, right? So right. I know exactly what my distances are. Ah, oh, so, very good. Yeah. Because it just did my head in just trying to figure out what these distances were that my characters were going on. It makes you appreciate that cartography is actually a skill. Yes. Who yes. even does that anymore? But the people who draw maps, they could do that. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the gold for me. I mean, it, it just just helps my brain come up with story points. Yeah, but it's however much time it takes, if you're using that for a whole trilogy or whatever the series is going to be, it's so worth it to, to just make that happen because, like you're saying, it's just a little guide for you. It's a map for you. It's yeah, everything. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just to ask quickly before uh, we wrap up here, is there anything specific in marketing-wise that you've either seen helped a lot or just true this marketing is kind of a personal experience because something works well for some person versus another but especially that you're self-publishing it so that means you're in charge of everything that's going on with the book you just do social media stuff or what do you do for the to get the word out there yeah i mean i try a little bit of everything i'm not a social media guru i've got friends that are they yeah. they're amazing at it they work at it and i'm just like oh my gosh i mean i started doing tiktok And that was kind of fascinating. I I just find TikTok very difficult because I'm not a front of camera person. I'm just not. (laughs) I just, I'm I'm a writer. I don't really want to be seen on camera. So it's a challenge for me to do that. You know, honestly, I actually found that hard advertising worked in regards to AdWords. 
was oh. quite good in going with Kindle, like Amazon. Oh, interesting. What do they call it? Amazon Marketing Services, AMS. It's, again, challenging. It's scary because you've got to, in the trial and error phase, you might end up going, spending a lot of money on words that aren't really doing anything for you. That's changed a lot too. Even from 2017, when I did some campaigns for book one, just the cost of the words were definitely more reasonable. Now you're paying like on average like a dollar, for a word or something, it's like, wow. oh, it's kind of expensive. It does work, it does, and even the Goodreads giveaways, that's changed as well. Amazon owns Goodreads and the prices, I mean, the giveaways used to be free, yes. but now you've got to pay, and it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't quite understand the cost, especially if you want to give away hardcover books, and people prefer to actually have books mailed to them, you yeah. know, that they prefer the books as opposed to giving away the audios. But oh my gosh, it's just so expensive to run a giveaway. Yes. It's a few hundred bucks now or something, plus you have to mail the book and then you have to have, yeah. well, you have to publish it and mail the book. Yeah, then you've got to go do all that. So that's the expense to the author as it is. So I'm like, why are they so expensive, even if you are going to ultimately mail this book to someone? So, yeah, I mean, I found TikTok was good, but I think like anything, probably a little bit late to the game with TikTok. I think the book talk part of TikTok really took off because of the pandemic. It just, like 2019, apparently... Like at the end of 2019 going to 2020, BookTok exploded and there were some authors that just exploded because there weren't a lot of people doing books and apparently that medium, books on TikTok, kind of really took off. From what I've read, because of TikTok, book librarians and bookstores are seeing a massive uptick oh. in younger, younger audiences going into a bookstore actually buying books because wow. it's become trendy to do book talk kind of thing and to tell everyone what you're reading and to review what you're reading. So for all of TikTok's ills that they've probably got, they've actually done really well for the publishing industry. Huh. Well, there's always another one. Right now this is having it. It's 15 minutes and who knows what will be next. Anything that's going to get people to buy more books, I'm happy. Well, yeah, and read, the, yeah. The, so TikTok is becoming very much like what Facebook, you know how Facebook was so user-friendly back in the day. Now mm. it's all about they want you to promote your posts. So TikTok, even in the, in the short time I've been on TikTok, I've seen it completely change where they're really now plugging that you're going to have to pay if you want anyone to see your post. Mm. You know, you can post, but you just don't know how many people are actually seeing it. Social media. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's, it's, it's what we call the necessary evil kind of thing. Exactly. All right. Very good. So we always wrap up with the uh, fill in the blank of, I really like it when... Anything story-related, so it be writers, editors, publishers, covers, series, stories, whatever, do X, and I really don't like X. How do you fill in the blank for that? I really like it when illustrators completely nail a book cover. Yeah. There's just some glorious, glorious designs out there. And I just think, how how did they come up with these amazing designs? So I really appreciate glorious book covers. And, well, this is just my personal pet peeve. I really hate it when agents take so long to get back to Yeah, <laughs> It's like, honestly, guys, I get that the whole thing is, you know, if you haven't heard back in, what, three weeks or three months, it is a no, but, yeah, that's my pet peeve. Just because you have 400 people swearing <laughs> yeah, doesn't right. mean, yeah. Because you mentioned the illustrator, I just got to give a shout out to Leah Nichols that we spoke to a while ago. He's a cover designer and he said very specifically, you judge a book by its cover because that means I did a good job if you pick up that book. And right. it's like, thank you for validating that. Well, very good. Sandra, thank you so much for your time. It was good to speak with you. 
Thank you for having me on, Esther. This was really fun. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Sandra Rosrola. To find out more about Sandra and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Check us out at eltenabound.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.